Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we're continuing our Bond series. We are in the last leg of Bond. Well, it's not really the last leg. We're making a final push to get through the rest of the Bond films so that we can go see Bond 25 or No Time to Die as soon as humanly possible. In full and complete context. Yes. So <laughs> we didn't take a break after the Oscars because we're doing this. Have we broken the Cuba girl by doing this? Are we giving ourselves full Bond context? Um, no, because when we do watch these films, we're we're comparing them to each other. We are. Yeah. And we do grade to a degree on the merits of whether or not the film stands alone. Yeah, Bond films don't necessarily tie to each other. Correct. Sometimes they do. Yeah. But very rarely, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were meant as single purpose spy adventures that happen to revolve around this one main character. Yeah. Which I think is why you can replace Bond and it it's fine. Well it's you know you liken it to those procedural shows, the, you know, Law and Orders, the NCIS is like you don't have to know who any of these people are to watch this show. Like you don't need to know anything about Bond to watch the movies. Except that he's a lot sexier than anybody on those shows. True, but it's the same concept. (laughs) Well, today, today's going to be our beefiest episode, I think. Okay, well, today we're going to hit through both of the Timothy Daltons. He only did two, so one more than Lazenby. It's a new Bond. It's one we've talked about a lot because they tried to get him a lot. They did! Mm -hmm. They've been trying to get him since 69. (laughs) Like... He was a candidate for the George Lazenby position. Mm-hmm. And finally, we've managed to land him in the role. Yep. With only two, I feel like it's just a perfect moment for a double feature. Yep. So we are starting with The Living Daylights. James Bond is sent to investigate a KGB policy to kill all enemy spies and uncovers an arms deal that potentially has major global ramifications. What? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, it's not a perfect movie, and it suffers from the we switched bonds, so now there's a little catching up to do. There's always a tonal shift when we change bonds. Yeah, and even with Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which we do love, mm-hmm. it was still a little bit jarring, especially because part of what we love here is what we could see Lazenby doing in five years. Yes. And this movie has that. But I gotta say, I kind of liked this movie. It was okay for me. Yeah. It wasn't bad. I didn't hate it, but it was kind of like, well, all right. It It has that Dr. No vibe. It was very forgettable to me. It was, except for Timothy Dalton. I did enjoy him. I really, he has sort of a more sneering charm than Roger Moore did, Mm -hmm. but with the same kind of playfulness. Mm -hmm. He's somewhere right between Sean Connery and Roger Moore. He's not too far into the silly and suave. See, I would not, I would not make the comparison to Sean Connery. I think he's more Lazenby and Roger Moore. Yeah. That's fair. I think he is very Lazenby with a little more polish because he's clearly an experienced actor. True. But there's also that whole aspect for us that 
it's a young dude. Because we, you know, no offense to Roger Moore, he was way too old. He was. He had gotten way too old. Now we say that. Mm -hmm. At the time of this movie, Timothy Dalton was 41. Okay. Now he looks young. Yes. Because he's just a very handsome gentleman. He is. But I think back to if you really wanted him young, like we think about he was a candidate in 69 for Majesty's Secret Service. Mm -hmm. Oh, he was a baby. He would have been 23. I just mean, even at 41, he's very young. He just is. He has a lot more energy than Roger Moore did in A View to a Kill. Oh, those last two, he was just on fumes. I know. I know. And it, like, especially View to a Kill, it sucks because that movie in and of itself has some crackling energy, especially with Mm -hmm. Christopher Walken as your bad guy. Yes. Like, watching this movie the whole time, I just went, you should have gotten Dalton in for your eyes only. Mm -hmm. We should have done that. That was the plan, was to get a new Bond then. Yeah. And that would have been a perfect movie to do that, because all three of those last more movies Mm -hmm. would have been drastically improved by having Timothy Dalton in the lead. Yes. They just would have. And so I think there's an element of the promise of having this new guy who's got a new energy that's really good and interesting. Mm -hmm. And it sucks that we didn't get him more. But we'll get into why as we talk about the movie. Our budget for this movie was $40 million. Okay. And it only grossed about $52 million. Hmm. It didn't do that great. One of the ideas behind that, and I think we'll talk about this more in our second part of our double feature, was that this movie wasn't matching up to the action standards at this time. Okay. By 1987, we've got like hard R blow em up action movies. Mm-hmm. And this isn't quite that. This is still kind of old school Bond. So this is not going to be able to compete up against freaking Die Hard. Nope. And that's something that that is increasingly going to become a part of the Bond franchise. Yes. Action films are now their own thing. And stateside, we upped the ante real hard. We did. Funny enough, because we brought in European directors. (laughs) Our writing, Ian Fleming wrote the short story in which this is based, Okay, but no credit on this film itself. And then Richard Maybaum and Michael G. Wilson. We've talked about them before. I'll go through real quick. Maybaum wrote everything from Dr. No through License to Kill. Okay. He was our guy. Yes. For the longest time. And then Michael G. Wilson was the successor to Albert Broccoli as a producer of the Bond movies and started writing on For Your Eyes Only and wrote through License to Kill, also producing James Bond Jr. But he has stayed on the production staff through the rest of this time. So he's still an executive producer of the Bond franchise. Okay. What are your thoughts about the writing for this movie? It's okay. It's an okay story. I mean, like some of the antagonists don't really age very well in our current political climate. wasn't great then either but um it's more so now not great it leans real hard into the cold warness of everything yeah which is fine i mean like in 1987 it made a bunch of sense Mm -hmm. it's real touch and go with the mujahideen (laughs) the fact that they went to the mujahideen isn't actually that bad like that's a very contemporary interesting setting Mm -hmm. for bond Sure. It's just that they treated it with the sensitivity that they treated like 
turkey in from Russia with love. Yeah, it's just it just feels icky. It's just not it's not great. I think that's what it is, is that they have that same attitude that they had in From Russia with Love. Mm-hmm. And it's like, the world's changed a lot. Yeah. Like, you can do this same story, but you need to treat it with a lot more gravitas. Because that whole conflict between the Mujahideen and the Soviets and in Afghanistan, it's way more serious than you're giving it any credit for. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, once the action rolls in, it's actually pretty cool and interesting and plays off how different that dynamic was. Yes. But the the Britishness of it all and the whiteness of it all is a little bad. It's a bit much. I think just part of this is that this movie feels a little convoluted. Mm-hmm. Like it just tries to do too many different set pieces. Yes. It's hard to follow to a degree. I like the story, but I think they needed to go a little bit simpler because we're having to adjust to a new bond. Yeah. I mean, we're already... We're already dealing with a Slovakian Mm -hmm. who plays cello and orchestras being recruited by these Soviets. And then the Soviets are dealing with an arms guy and that's its own separate thing. And then we are going to Afghanistan all of a sudden. And it just it starts getting like two or three steps outside the realm of where it could have gone. (laughs) Of what seems like normal. At one point, the film was actually supposed to be a prequel ending with Bond being given the mission created in Dr. No. Okay, that that would have been cool. The rumor was that Roger Moore was going to come back, though that rumor was never true. Mm-hmm. Moore was done. Fair. And originally, a young Bond was going to team up with a senior agent to infiltrate a Chinese warlord in a jungle compound, and Bond would avenge the death of this older agent. Okay. Albert Broccoli vetoed the idea, though, Mm -hmm. because he thought audiences were more interested in who Bond is rather than who Bond was. I think that's fair. I think that's fair, especially at the time. Mm -hmm. For us now, and especially with the Daniel Craig reboot, Mm -hmm. I think the audiences were finally hungry for a Bond origin story. Yes. Though... They still didn't quite give that to us. What they've done so far, and I, again, I've not read any of the books, so I can't, I can only speak to what other more educated Bond enthusiasts have said, and <laughs> that they gave really good lip service to, to what we already had known. Yeah. And the prequel obviously does get made as Casino Royale in mm-hmm. 2006. That's the official Bond prequel origin story. Mm-hmm. This movie has a lot of similarities to Octopussy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see that now, especially as you get into these later films, they are stealing from the older movies and drop stuff from those scripts constantly. Yeah. Like half the trivia on these movies is they use this scene from this movie that they didn't have in the other one. Yeah. But it actually makes a lot of sense for this movie because Octopussy comes from the exact same short story collection as The Living Daylights. Mm-hmm. So I think they're similar because Ian Fleming was just churning out stories. Our director is John Glenn. He started directing all of the 80s movies and was the editor on On Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. Okay. So we are continuing his 80s run of directing Bond here. What do you think about John Glenn's directing in this movie? I think that's where this movie kind of sucks for me. Oh, okay. Because the movie moves so slowly. And I, I think we really just needed 
we needed someone with a better maybe it's a little bit of the script because it, it wanders a lot but like the movie is so slow and I don't think he ever like made them pick up the pace anytime I think John Glenn from what we've seen of him is really good at directing set action pieces once you get to big action moment mm-hmm. it gets good we're on that plane the bombs are about to go off we're out the back of the plane climbing the cargo netting then we yeah. have to get back in and jump the car out like all that stuff is awesome mm-hmm. it's really cool yeah it's all the in between stuff that is just boring yeah there's just a lot of exposition and no payoff i think our bond girl is super boring i feel like there's really like no stakes with her yeah, I, I think they've gotten in a rut here, and it's curious, mm-hmm. because the second part of our double feature, I think, tries to buck that pretty hard, Okay, but I feel like they've gotten themselves into a pattern and a formula, mm-hmm. and they just wrote it with this movie, thinking, okay, we've got a new Bond, we'll just ease into it, and it was like, this was the wrong way to go, Yeah, <laughs> because audiences are expecting way more of you now. On to our cast, and we start... With the man of this episode, Mm -hmm. Timothy Dalton as James Bond. Before this, he was in The Lion in Winter, Cromwell, 1970's Wuthering Heights, 1971's Mary Queen of Scots, The Executioner, Sextet, Flash Gordon, and 1983's Jane Eyre. After this, he's in License to Kill, Mm -hmm. The Rocketeer, The Beautician and the Beast, American Outlaws, Looney Tunes Back in Action, Tales from Earthsea, Hot Fuzz, Toy Story 3 and 4 as Mr. Pricklepants, The Tourist, and Penny Dreadful on television. And tons and tons and tons of stage performances. I forgot that was him in Beautician and the Beast. <laughs> I saw that movie in the theaters. And he's Mr. Pricklepants? Mm-hmm. Is that the hedgehog? Yes, the actor hedgehog. Yeah, I'm He's so- great in Hot Fuzz, too. He's in Hot Fuzz? Yes, he's the main bad guy. I'm going to have to go watch all of these movies again. <laughs> because, okay, I, I did really like Timothy Dalton, but I, I think he's just one of those actors for me that I have a very hard time placing. He's such a seasoned stage performer mm-hmm. that he blends into a lot of stuff he does. He does. Because he just roots in the character. Mm-hmm. I think it shows what a good actor he is that he does stand out as James Bond. He does. Like, at no point did I feel like he was melting into the background? I was like, no, regardless of what's going on, I notice him and I mm-hmm. believe that he is hot shit and the best spy in the room. Yes. He's just, he's got that confidence. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, that's just pure acting on his part. Well, it's for me, it's a lot of that Lazenby vibe that I loved. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm hot shit. Like, I'm hot shit you didn't <laughs> you didn't get that from connery no because he was he was darker and more dangerous <laughs> he was darker and it was also like yes i've earned my acclaim mm-hmm. and lazby's like no i'm the shit like and that's just it roger moore was our goofy drunk uncle <laughs> horny uncle oh that's true horniest bond ever <laughs> he, he was our horniest bond ever of course we said he has been up for the role of james bond since on her majesty's secret service and he he actually turned down the role himself mm-hmm. for Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever mm-hmm. because he thought he was too young. I respect that feeling. At 23 and 25, he, I get that. He was very young. He's just like, I am in no way prepared to take this on. Mm-hmm. He turned down For Your Eyes Only in 1981, 
only because there wasn't a first draft of the script when he was approached. You know, that's not stupid. Wasn't a script in place. He was not going to do it without seeing what was written. Mm -hmm. And then he had previous commitments going on at the time of Octopussy and View to a Kill. Okay. So, I mean, that whole time they were ready for him to jump in. And he just couldn't do it. He had other stuff. <laughs> he couldn't do it. And he's not going to commit to something where he doesn't have a script, which is honestly very smart. Yeah. But I do really enjoy him. Like, I was like, he's a good James Bond. He, he is. He almost wasn't in this movie, though. Mm-hmm. And it starts with our first biggest who could have been better. Okay. Pierce Brosnan. Yep. Because I was literally just thinking, you know, Dalton being Bond right now explains so much how we got Brosnan next. They are very similar. Dalton, I think, had another commitment that yep. precluded him from doing this. And they said, okay, Pierce, you're it. You're Bond. It's your turn. They gave him the script. He started getting ready. But he was contracted for Remington Steel with NBC for seven years. Mm -hmm. They canceled the show after four. So cool. Great. They signed him up. And then NBC started having second thoughts about canceling uh, a hugely popular show. <laughs> Remington Steel was a big deal at the time. I mean, he was basically being James Bond on television. Yep. So NBC went to the Bond producers and they said, look, can we make a deal where we're not conflicting with the schedules? Smart. They wanted to try to work it out. And Albert Broccoli finally put a kibosh on the whole thing. He said, James Bond will not be Remington Steel, and Remington Steel will not be James Bond. Uh, okay. And I massively respect that move. One, it's an IP protection. Oh, yes. And also, it's that whole thing of like, my thing is way bigger of a deal than your thing. I am not going to let my thing be used to promote your thing. Yeah, and it's, it's a bigger deal because of its legacy. Yes. Like, Remington Steel was one of the biggest shows in television. <laughs> But that was because it was TV Bond. It was. And American TV Bond. Yes. Like he was playing a Brit, but it's a very American show versus mm -hmm. Bond, which is quintessentially British. Yep. And it could sound like just a dick move, but I think it was far more about if we do this, we're now completely and inextricably linking these two franchises. Yeah. And we shouldn't do that. These two characters are different. They should stay different. Well, yeah, and I think that's also, like, one of the bigger reasons why, like, someone like Idris Elba has also said no. Yeah. Because Bond is too much like some of his other characters, but in a different way. And it's like, I don't I don't want those together. Yeah, that makes sense. No, it totally does. They would only let Pierce do it if Remington Steel got canceled. NBC had a 60-day deadline to respond back to the ultimatum. Mm. And on the 60th day... They told Pierce Brosnan, we're making a fifth season of Remington Steel. So he was out. He was out. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Now, that's what we have to ask. Would Pierce Brosnan have been better for this movie? I don't think so. I don't think it matters so much. Probably not for this movie. Be exact, because the script and the, the direction isn't great. And I don't think there would have been much difference from Pierce Brosnan. Maybe. But there's there's a little more smoldering and intensity from Dalton that fits the 80s-ness of this just a tiny bit more. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it just gives him that slight edge. Just the slightest edge. Mm, okay. We have a bunch more who could have been better, though. Okay. Christopher Reeve. Well, I mean, he's American. Yes. 
and I, and I get every now and then they they look at an American actor for it. The producers pitched him for a million dollars, which at the time was what that, that was, was Sean Connery money. He would have been the only American to play Bond. They were prepared to make the offer. I, um, that's not a hard no from me. Would have been interesting. And if anybody could have convincingly played British, Christopher Reeve was a great actor. Oh, he's a great actor. I don't I don't I don't even know that I've ever heard him try a British accent, so I I'm, know. I'm not sure. Sam Neill. Sam Neill. Yes. Huh. He sc- no. He screen tested and everyone was impressed. You know, you know who he would have been great for? Who? An M role. I mean, maybe, but this is 1987 Sam Neill. No, no, I I get it, but he's this isn't the the right word, but like regal and mature. He's not a Bond guy. Yeah, I want to see that screen test though. I I wouldn't be mad to see that, but I, he's to me strikes me as an M character, not a not a Bond. I get you. I get you. How about Sean Bean, who is considered at one point? Yeah, that makes sense. He will show up later in the franchise. Mel Gibson. Okay. Time and place. Uh, <laughs> makes sense. Albert turned him down because he wasn't British. He's Australian. Yes. They've had problems with Australians. <laughs> <laughs> also, let's be fair. Mel this same year did Lethal Weapon, and that would have shot his chance of ever being a James Bond character in the foot. He is a wild man. He's better at playing a wild man action hero. Oh, I don't disagree. But also, he was hot fucking shit then, too. He was. I mean, I I totally was here for Mel Gibson, and now I'm not. And finally, I'm Connor McLeod of the Clan McLeod. Oh, fuck you. Born in 1519. I am immortal. I cannot die. Christopher Lambert was considered for the role of Bond. Dear listeners. David tried really hard to get me to name our son Connor. Literally every time Highlander is mentioned, David has to do that speech. (laughs) And so does my father. And I did not want to sign up for that for the rest of my life. Sir, I'm sorry I called your wife a bloated warthog. (laughs) I I just hate you. Okay, but Christopher Lambert? I wouldn't say no. I'd want to see how he did, like, in a screen test. Mm -hmm. But, like, he's gotten... He would be fascinating if we were going dark. Because he's so angular. Yeah. And so kind of spiky. That if we were going super dark with it, could have been interesting. Mm -hmm. But we didn't. So, no. All right. Mariam Diabo as Cara Malovi. Before this, she did a bunch of random shit and weird cult films. And after this, she did a bunch of straight-to-video shit. This is, like, the only big credit. Oh, okay. Well, it doesn't really surprise me. She's very, very blah. Like, she's completely forgettable in this film. I know. It's not that she's bad. No, she's. they don't she, do anything with her. They don't, and she gives nothing for us to remember her by. Like, it's not like she does anything unique or interesting to mm-hmm. help us. She's just there. Yeah. And it sucks. It sucks. It does. I mean, like, we're not trying to shit on the actor. It's just like, there's nothing special about your character. She's actually the last blonde Bond girl until Spectre. Interesting. And she was up for the role of Pola Ivanova in A View to a Kill. Okay. She didn't get that, obviously. But she was originally brought in for this film just to be the Bond test screen girl. Okay. 
So she was there to just act opposite because she'd given decent auditions in the past. And then after enough auditions, they were like, you work with Dalton. Let's let's, let's do it. (laughs) Let's look at you a little more seriously. Yeah. All right. I have no idea how to pronounce this guy's name, but I'm going to give it my best shot. Okay. Jeroen Kraba as General Georgi Koskov. Georgi Koskov. He's our slicked back Russian defector. Okay. Before this, tons and tons of Dutch movies. He is a Dutch man. Also, Jumpin' Jack Flash and No Mercy. After this, A World Apart, Crossing Delancey, 1989's The Punisher, he played the title role. Mm-hmm. Till There Was You, Kafka, The Prince of Tides, 1993's The Fugitive, Immortal Beloved, Ever After a Cinderella Story, An Ideal Husband, Ocean's Twelve, Deuce Bigelow European Gigolo, and Transporter 3. Hmm. Go to European dude. Dude. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I <laughs> I kind of like him though. I kind of like the coked out Russian bad guy. Yeah, he's perfectly fine. I just <laughs> He chews scenery while he's on screen, yes. and I appreciate that because he makes the other villains feel a little more grounded and dangerous because of how mustache twirly he is. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of makes everybody a little bit better. Okay. I don't know. I kind of enjoyed him. Then we have Joe Don Baker as Brad Whitaker. Yep. Joe Don Baker is about to become a regular Bond presence. But funny enough, he is only one of three actors in the franchise to play both a villain and an ally. Okay. Because when we get to the Pierce Brosnan series, he's mm-hmm. going to be a friend of Bond <laughs> and not as this same character. <laughs> no, it's, jeez. <laughs> like, I just can't even at this point. <laughs> Before this, he had an uncredited role in Cool Hand Luke, which we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Guns of the Magnificent Seven, Wild Rovers, Junior Bonner, Walking Tall, Charlie Varick, the Mystery Science Theater 3000 classic Mitchell. <laughs> The Natural as The Whammer, which we also saw, Whammer. and Fletch. After this, The Killing Time, Leonard Part 6, 1991's Kate Fear, Reality Bites, Congo, Goldeneye and Tomorrow Never Dies, Joe Dirt, The Commission, The Dukes of Hazard in 2005, Strange Wilderness, and Mud. He's still hanging around with us, just making some movies here and there. That's cool. I mean, he's okay. He is okay. I like the character more than I care about his performance. Yeah. I like the idea of his character, and I feel like we don't get enough time with him. No, we don't. He's very quick, and I almost forgot who he was, like most of the movie. That's one of the problems, is we spend so much time jumping from location to location, when we should have spent that time getting to look at how maniacal brad whitaker was yeah because he's a bad guy he is like he's one of the first bond bad guys we've seen in a while that truly feels threatening and dangerous yes because he does not give a fuck kind of like a la joker yeah he's he's just prepared to blow up everyone because he loves war yeah (laughs) who could have been better Lee Van Cleef, the bad from The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Okay. He could have played a convincing general guy. Yeah. But I guess my problem is he's a little too he's a little too military. 
Okay. Like, even in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, yeah, he's a man in black, but he's still got this statuesque presence. Mm -hmm. And Jodon Baker has that convincingly, I'm just a wacky dude who loves to play war. Yeah. I was like, eh, I just, I don't think that would work. He would work better in the role John Reese davies winds up playing. Yeah, that that would be better for him. Speaking of which, mm-hmm. our final main actor, John Reese davies as General Leonid Pushkin. Pushkin. Before this, tons of British prestige dramas, dramas in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Then Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Okay, that's that was it was driving me crazy. Victor Victoria, Sahara, King Solomon's Mines, In the Shadow of Kilimanjaro, and Firewalker. After this, Waxwork, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Gargoyles on television as a voice. Oh yeah. Sliders. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Fucking loved that show. Gimli in the Lord of the Rings movies. Princess Diaries 2, In the Name of the King, a Dungeon Siege Tale. And he's doing a lot of small movies and shorts and just kind of working. There wasn't anything big that he was doing recently. Jeez. But he's just doing stuff now. He's one of those guys that I see all the time and I just don't know who his name is. (laughs) Jeez. It's just a British actor who convincingly plays kind of vaguely Eastern European people. Yeah. What do you think about him? Oh, he's good. I would have liked more of him. It's that It's that thing. All of our secondary characters don't get near enough time on screen. No, they really don't. They just don't. It's all plot and very little character. And it sucks because yeah. the plot just gets boring after a while. Originally, this was intended to be Bond regular and Arpon extraordinaire Walter Gattel playing General Gogol. If you'll recall, oh. he shows up midway through the Connery series, I think. No, he, yeah, he's in like From Russia with Love. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, he shows up way early. Gattel fell ill before they got started, and Broccoli could not get him insured. <laughs> he just could not get the insurance company to pay for him to, to be able to act because he wow. had gotten sick and was elderly. Broccoli said, I'm, I will pay tons of money out of my own pocket to insure him, but they wouldn't do it. Lloyd's just refused. And so because of that, they wanted to tie it in with Gogol and make him another main character this time. Mm -hmm. In fact, Pushkin's girlfriend that we see in the movie was actually supposed to be Gogol's secretary that we saw him messing around with in every movie. (laughs) And so he does get a cameo. Okay. He's one of our Arpons, but this would be his final appearance in the films. Okay. He retired shortly thereafter. Arpons. We have Art Malik as Kamran Shah. This is our main head Mujahideen dude. Okay. You would know him from True Lies. Mm, Okay. I think he's one of our our terrorist cell dudes in True Lies. Yep. And a kid in King Arthur's Court. Just throwing that one in there. Andreas Wisniewski as Necros. He would be a familiar face from both Die Hard and Mission Impossible. Yeah. He has that... Yeah. European bad guy face. Yeah, it's unfortunate. <laughs> Thomas Wheatley as Saunders. Saunders. He did a bunch of British stage stuff, but he was in Death at a Funeral, which is a very underrated, funny British that- movie. Then we have our regulars, Desmond Llewellyn as Q, Robert Brown as M, taking over from way back in the Roger Moore days. Jeffrey Keane is the Minister of Defense in his final acting role. Mm-hmm. And Walter Gattel as General Anatole Gogol, as we talked about. We then have the appearance of our new Money Penny. 
mm-hmm. Caroline Bliss. Now, she did not do much else than play Money Penny in these two movies. Mm-hmm. But she did play Lady Di in a 1982 Charles and Diana TV movie. Mm-hmm. So, hey, not bad. I can guarantee you I've seen that movie. <laughs> I don't hate her, though. She's kind of fun. She's way too flirty with Bond. She is a little, it's just a little bit much, but it would have been nice if he played with her a little bit more. Yeah. John Terry as Felix Leiter. We've seen him as both Jack's dad in Lost and Full Metal Jacket. He's so good. And this is Felix Leiter's first time back in the franchise since Live and Let Die. Okay. Virginia Hay as Rubovich. She was in both The Road Warrior and Farscape. Belle Avery as Linda. She went on to be a producer of all things, including The Meg and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Okay. We have Nadim Sawala as the Tangier Chief of Security. We saw him in The Spy Who Loved Me. So he's making another appearance in the Bond franchise. And then, for some real random cameos, as the main orchestra conductor, John Barry, the legendary James Bond composer. Okay, that's funny. Barbara Broccoli as a soldier in the snow sequence. What? She's just in the background there. Oh my god. Jane Wilson and Michael G. Wilson as patrons at the opera. Mm-hmm. Those make sense. But Barbara Broccoli deciding she wanted to strap on a rifle in the snow stuff is very silly. It's very bizarre. And Carrie Shale did the voice of Necros and the parrot in this movie. Why do we keep watching movies with parrots? I don't know. This one just has one randomly. At least this one doesn't feature it as a prominent character. Fair. She actually did tons of voice work for Thomas and Friends. Okay. Like all the way through the run of that. Hmm, Interesting. All right. Let's talk about our song, The Living Daylights by Aha. What do you think? Sad for Aha. (laughs) I mean, Aha is a great Swedish band. Yes. They're very talented. And this is fine. I actually don't hate it. It's very generic 80s. It's very generic 80s. It doesn't have, like, the actual cool flavor of You to a Kill by Duran Duran. Mm-hmm. Like, that one's actually legit a banger. Yeah. And this one's just like, okay, y'all were trying to do the same thing, and it didn't quite work out as well. Yeah. Morten Harkett, I'm going to say it in a Swedish accent because it's probably the only good way to do it was offered a small role as a bad guy in this movie. Mm-hmm. But he turned it down because, one, they were touring in Japan at the time, and two, he didn't think they actually wanted him for his acting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, look, when you're a Swedish band doing the theme song for James Bond, you get to bizarre. be as snooty as you want about it. You get to be snooty about a lot of things when you're Swedish. Because well, you're Swedish and awesome. Yep, pretty much. Apparently, they did not collaborate very well with John Barry, though. Mm. There are two versions of the theme song. Mm -hmm. Barry's mix is what makes it on the final soundtrack. Okay. But the band's preferred version is on their 1988 album. Oh. So they redid it. Uh, Okay. And I don't think they liked what John Barry did with the orchestration. There's actually a different song over the end credits. Okay. This is the first Bond movie to do this. It's called If There Was a Man by The Pretenders. Oh. And that leads us to a who could have been better. The Pretenders were considered to do the title song originally, but because of the hit that Duran Duran had, they wanted to go with a trendier group. Mm, I 
understand. That makes sense to me. But Barry liked the Pretender song so much better Mm -hmm. that he actually ran that as the through line through the movie. Mm -hmm. So that song actually appears more and a few other Pretender songs appear more than the main Living Daylights theme. It's not very good. (laughs) I don't really like either song. But I feel like it's just like, that's peak petty from you, John Barry. Oh, that sounds accurate. <laughs> I just, the song's very blah. It's not a banger. And who could have been better? Number two, the Pet Shop Boys. They backed out when they learned they wouldn't be able to soundtrack the full film. Mm-hmm. But imagine a synth disco Bond score by mm-hmm. the Pet Shop Boys. Damn. <laughs> that would be badass. That'd be cool. It would be very good. It might not fit the movie at all, but it would be good. It would be interesting. All right. Trivia. Speaking of John Barry, this would be the last film that featured one of his scores. Okay. This would be the last Bond film until Casino Royale to use an Ian Fleming title. There's going to be a lot of lasts in this series, by the Mm -hmm. way, because we're approaching changing of a guard. Carl Brigg wound up being chosen to play the imposter in this movie but originally was just supposed to be a stuntman. At the time, he was out of work and being a stay-at-home dad. Cool. When he got the call, he left the baby with a neighbor, left his wife a note telling her, I'm going to be in a bun film, and caught the next plane out to go make the movie. That's not cool. (laughs) Like, I get it. It's money. And it's Bond. I I totally get it, but that makes it sound really negligent. (laughs) And my guess is that's not really how it went down. That's just how it sounds. It's it's probably not completely how it went down. Like, he probably also called his wife as soon as he could. I I have to go. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Frederick Warder and Glenn Baker were cast as 004 and 002 in the intro sequence. Because of how much they looked like George Lazenby and Roger Moore respectively. That's awesome. When the rocket fired from the stereo in Q's lab, it was set off by Prince Charles, who was touring the set with Diana. Oh, I did know about this. This also instigated the footage and photograph of Diana hitting Charles over the head with a breakaway bottle. <laughs> Apparently, Jerome Crabbe was the one who goaded them into doing it. Yeah. What That's year, fun. What year was this? 1987. Yeah, they have been married for a hot minute. <laughs> Pretty fun, though. I gotta admit. It's good times had by all. Okay, if they don't recreate that moment in um, The Crown, I'm gonna be really pissed. (laughs) Come on. Come on, do it. (laughs) Dalton performed the opening sequence with the Land Rover in Gibraltar himself. Okay, that's kind of cool. And that stunt sequence is fucking nuts. It is pretty nuts. I think that's what what gets me about him in this movie, Mm -hmm. is that we start off strong on the action. We really do, and then it's womp womp the rest of the, the movie. But he is game. Yes. When those is. action sequences come up, it's like he'll be smooth and suave and debonair, and then when the action starts, he is a fucking badass. Which we, we've we never had before. He like switches it on and off so well. Well, we got a little bit of that with some Lazenby, but not a lot. Yeah, no, it's, it's just, it, it's putting it all together for him in a mm-hmm. really good way. For the gas pipeline, Koskov's defection craft is an actual piece of equipment. It's called a scouring pig. That thing actually does clean the natural gas pipelines between Western Europe and Russia. Hmm. They adapted it for the movie to carry a person inside. I mean, they didn't actually do it, do it practically, but that was the idea. Yeah. 
And the pipeline is actually known as the Trans-Siberian Pipeline. The cello case chase sequence. John Glenn had to convince the entire team it would actually work Mm -hmm. by getting into a cello case himself. (laughs) That's funny. They're like, this is not going to be good. And he was like, fine, I'll show you. Like, no one will believe that. It happens. Then it turns out to be one of the coolest things in the movie. Took three days to shoot. The cello was made of fiberglass and fit with handles on the side and skis underneath. So it could actually go down the hill, practically. And firecrackers embedded in the snow simulated the gunfire. But because Dalton was heavier than Diablo, Mm. the case tended to flip over. Oh. (laughs) Was side heavy. Mm. The opening Gibraltar scene used actual military installations not open to the public. So. Ooh. The broccoli's calling in those connections. He has. Features the only deliberate nude scenes in the Bond franchise outside of the opening title. Hmm. The Ferris wheel where Bond takes Kara is the same Ferris wheel used in the classic movie The Third Man in Vienna. And I'm pretty sure Spider-Man Far From Home. On which director John Glenn got his first job in the editing department. Tying it all back together for him. That's very cool. I know. This was released in the 25th anniversary of the original Bond films and led to a TV special being filmed. Mm -hmm. Like For Your Eyes Only, they intended to have a parody of Charles and Diana in the film. Okay. But they did not actually do that. This was the final Bond film to show a bevy of women at any point. We see them at Whitaker's house. But despite this, this is the first time in the entire franchise that Bond is a one-woman man. He only ever dates and hooks up with one lady in this movie. Mm. That's the first time they'd ever done that. I mean, it's a nice change of pace, but she was so boring. Well, she's a bad Bond girl, but it, it's it's a nice move to make with him. I was like, let's do something different with him. He doesn't mm-hmm. need to have sex with everybody. <laughs> the container containing an alleged human heart is labeled Handle Like Eggs, the same warning on the missiles in Thunderball. The Red Cross protested the use of their logo on multiple helicopters in the film, Mm -hmm. but they hadn't complained about that with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. So, hmm. Mm. When Roger Moore was presumed to return originally in the film, one of the ideas was to have Bond face a villainess. Played by Betty Davis. Ooh. Hmm. That would have been very formidable and cool. I know. This is the first time Bond smokes since Man with the Golden Gun and smoking cigarettes since On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm -hmm. But he kind of needs it. It's real tense. Unedited footage of the film was stolen and videos got bootlegged as if they were the final movie. Mm -hmm. The producers had to explain that the film hadn't been soundtracked or special effects added. Mm -hmm. So the only way to get a real movie experience was to buy a ticket. It's like, you can watch this if you want to. It's not going to be any good. Yeah. And despite being rebuilt after its major fire, the film was not shot on the 007 stage. They did not return to the 007 stage until Tomorrow Never Dies. So it'd be another 10 years before they got back there. Interesting. All right. Ratings. Ratings. Think we got to go with Parachute Humvees. Parachute Humvees. Okay. This is my movie. Yep. They're all my movies, because I've seen all of them now. Yes. I keep waffling back and forth. I think I'm going to go with a two and a half. Okay. I would put it at a three, but it's so convoluted. It's so messy. It's trying to tell 
three too many stories. And, you know, because of that, you don't get enough of the really cool side characters and you Mm -hmm. don't have a strong Bond girl, but you have a really promising James Bond. (laughs) I just I I split the middle with this because I'm like, there's something here. It's just not there in how they put this movie together. Mm -hmm. Two and a half. I'm going to go with a two. It wasn't bad. It just was it was I was just boring. I know. Like, I enjoy most of the elements. I think the Bond girl does their biggest misstep for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then aside, you know, the casual racism. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, we come it, to expect that from the Bond franchise. I mean, it hasn't been quite as bad as it, it was in the beginning. It wasn't live and let die. That was so bad. <gasps> oh, that was bad. But, hey, we're not done. We're not done. Because we have to talk about the other Timothy Dalton movie. Yes, because there's another one. And in this one, we're going to get on that violent train a little bit. Oh, okay. We're going to see if we can maybe get Bond into the new age of action cinema. Mm -hmm. So let's go watch License to Kill. Okay. So we just watched License to Kill. Against the orders of MI6, James Bond goes rogue and seeks vengeance against a drug lord who left his best friend for dead after murdering his wife while uncovering a drug plot posing as a hitman. Okay. <laughs> this movie's not very good. No, it's really not. It's trying. It is try. It's trying to do something different. And they've got the wrong crew to do do it they they do they're trying to strike a new tone and they don't know how to do it and it's not dalton's fault no like dalton is the right guy to try to do this but definitely the director and the old school bond crew like this feels like an old school bond movie trying to be a new school bond movie y- you had to wipe the slate of everybody involved to, you needed to a, do this you needed a new creative team mm-hmm. you needed somebody new to come in and do this like if you got a john mctiernan who did die hard or a rennie harlan or like somebody who'd already made some big deal action movies mm-hmm. that are new ish this movie would work and I, I wonder, too, like, do we miss something in this movie by not having it go even more violent, like a Die Hard? I think that's part of it because it comes off as cheesy and we're getting, like, we've talked about it, that, like, that part of the issue is at the time, things have gotten more violent. So the fact that this just doesn't go very hard is kind of a joke. It's trying to split the difference because it's still trying to capitalize on that whole bond feeling mm-hmm. but you can't do that anymore no you you've got to figure you've got to be way more creative if you're going to work around that to keep yourself in at least a PG-13 range mm-hmm. which this is the first PG-13 bond film okay every other bond film was PG up to this point now in the 60s you could get away with more on a PG rating yeah but this is the first time that they got that that bump up mm-hmm. and it's all over the trivia for this movie. They were trying to match that tone. And I, I get that. It's just it's just off. It's just really off. And then for me, Timothy Dalton is off this whole film. Really? Yeah. And like, I just, Timothy Dalton is one of those people who I always forget who he is. The charm that we had in The Living Daylights is not as, is not quite there. 
at least all the time. There are moments where it's really fun. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it's not because of him. It's because of our Bond girl, who's yes. one of the better Bond girls we've had in a while. Yeah. It's a shame that they wrote her so shitty mm-hmm. because the actress was doing a lot. The budget for this movie was $32 million. Mm-hmm. This was actually considered fairly reined in. Apparently, they were still paying down debt from the Moonraker budget because of how expensive that was. Wow. So its U.S. gross was $34,667,000. Just made its money back on U.S. gross, but total worldwide $156 million. Okay. Respectable, but it's considered the least successful Bond film based on the expectations of the studio. They were hoping that this movie would earn about $210 million. Wow. They wanted it to become the highest grossing Bond film of all time. And they really thought they were going to get somewhere in the $65 million range in the US because they filmed everything around the United States. Hmm. You know, they we go to we go to Cuba, but the whole thing was we're setting it in the US. We're trying to go after the US market. Mm-hmm. The problem was they were packed around with movies like Batman, mm-hmm. The Abyss, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Lethal Weapon 2. Yeah. They were battling Titan-level blockbusters. And action films at that. Hardcore action films. Mm. And, you know, for The Abyss and Lethal Weapon 2, movies that were able to go much further mm-hmm. than this movie was ever allowed to do. Yep. It was hamstrung from the beginning by the creative team mm-hmm. and by the broccolis not knowing that if you want to compete now, you've got to change things up. Yep. They definitely knew that they had to catch up with the mega successes of Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Mm-hmm. That was an absolute must. And that's why they pushed the violence and amped it up a lot for this movie. It's still, it's cheesy because they're trying not to get that R rating mm-hmm. so that they can get more people in to see it. But I think what you what you lose there is the visceral feeling of some of those scenes. Like, granted, Dario dying in a cocaine grinder is pretty fucking terrifying mm-hmm. and really well done. But like the shark sequence is just silly. Yeah. And it could be way more terrifying. Mm-hmm. They just didn't do that. Nope. Our writers are Michael G. Wilson and Richard Maybaum, but Maybaum had to step down from the film in the middle of 1988 during the Writers Guild strike. In in his mind, he could not in good conscience ghostwrite and cross the picket line. Fair. As a member of the Guild. So Michael G. Wilson, who was mainly a producer on these films, mm-hmm. and I think may not have been a member of the Guild himself, mm-hmm. went ahead and finished the rest of the script on his own. Ooh, okay. What do you think about the script for this movie? It just drags a lot. There's a lot of unnecessary filler. Yep. Like, it's almost as though they felt they had to explain how a cocaine ring would work. Yeah, and it's just like, we, we don't care. Well, and we don't and we don't need it. It was like audiences at the time would have seen so many newspaper articles about this. They mm-hmm. would understand how drugs pass through Miami. Mm-hmm. Like nobody cares. We already know this information. And now we either know this information or it's not really integral to the plot of this movie. They sell drugs and they parlay that money into huge financial gains. Mm-hmm. That's 
pretty simple. Yeah, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's a simple plot that they overcomplicated for no reason. Yep. And this movie could have been like an hour 40 Mm -hmm. and still done exactly what they wanted it to. Mm -hmm. The one thing I have to give them credit, they wrote really good characters. I think they had a decent framework. I think they didn't know what to do with it because this story drags and I don't like our Bond girl at all. Wow, I actually really like her. I find her boring as hell. I don't. I find her compelling and interesting because she's an active part of the story. See, I think she's a wet blanket. I think you could have gotten rid of her and there's almost no consequence. Well, to be fair, you could get rid of almost every Bond girl in every one of these movies. It's true. That's kind of the whole point. But I, I genuinely don't care about her. I thought she was an actual badass when they wanted her to be. My problem was that they then wrote her out of sequences and like forced her to be in love with them, which was not necessary at all. Like if we did this now, hell no, she'd just be her own independent US agent. Be like, fuck you, James Bond. I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> and I like our villain. I think our villain's really fucking scary hmm. for once. Like the stakes feel real. That's I think the only thing that they get truly right is like, this is not some massive, crazy world domination plot. This is a dude that's trying to sell drugs and will kill anybody who gets in his way. Yeah, I did like that. The stakes did feel relatively real. Like, that's the one thing that they've sort of carried over into a new generation that feels like they finally got that right in this movie. But it just doesn't make up for some of the other crap. Bond's betrayal of M was a means of sidestepping the fact that the British could not go after a Latin American drug cartel. Okay. So it was actually a plot decision. Hmm. And because the writing was on the wall with communism and the Cold War, they very expressly decided not to make a Cold War thriller. Yeah. They opted instead to go with Central America because it wasn't a threat anymore. And the promotional materials showed Sanchez as a villain that was, quote, ripped from the headlines. Okay. So they understand that Russia is not a boogeyman anymore. No. And so what are we going to do about that? Yeah. Originally, the film was set in China, but difficulties became insurmountable to film there. There were two treatments set around drugs being sold in the Golden Triangle and the villain a drug lord in one of these regions. Mm Mm-hmm. That script also would have featured a motorcycle chase on the Great Wall of China and a fight in the then recently discovered terracotta soldier statues in Jan. Yeah. The Chinese government wanted veto rights over the script and then the filming of The Last Emperor by Bernardo Bertolucci was one of the first Hollywood movies to get into China like that. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, the novelty wore thin and they decided hey, this isn't worth it for us. And one thing you will note, as with many of these recycled plots, the plot of this film is eerily similar to The Man with the Golden Gun. What? I don't have all the similarities here, but it's just it's something that keeps popping up in trivia. Hey, this movie looks a lot like these other ones. Oh, shit. I totally do get that. Directing John Glenn. He's directed all of our Bond films, starting with For Your Eyes Only. Mm-hmm. This would be his last Bond film. Despite being considered a commercial failure, he considered this his best Bond film. Okay. What do you think about the directing? Eh. (laughs) You know. I appreciate that they were trying to do something different, but 
again, they needed a whole new group. They needed fresh blood to do what they wanted to do. Sorry, repeat that. If there's one thing we've learned about John Glenn watching all of his movies, mm-hmm. it's that he's very, very good at filming big action sequences mm-hmm. and really terrible at filling in the middle. And this movie needed to be constant action sequence. Like if you want to compete with a diehard or a lethal weapon, number one, you need more action. And number two, the in-between needs to be really killer. It needs to be fun and it needs to be fast. And I don't think he knows how to do that. Now, I don't know how hamstrung he is by the script, but like there's just nothing. There's nothing there. Mm -hmm. Glenn left Eon Productions after the film and then Richard Maybaum passed away in 1991. And so this would lead into the gap between this film and Goldeneye. They called it a bloodless coup as so many people from the longtime creative team at Eon began to leave. That, coupled with lingual wrangling with MGM over character rights, delayed Goldeneye until 1995. Albert Broccoli fell sick during the production of this film. The thin air gave him trouble breathing. He had to leave the location of shooting, and he never returned to the Bond set as a producer. So this is the end of the road for Albert Broccoli. He would retire before GoldenEye started going into production. Yep. Now, this is not the end of the Broccoli family production. No. Barbara Broccoli, his daughter, is still very much involved. And so she's going to be taking over the reins when we get to the next film. This is also Maurice Bender's last film doing the opening titles. Those classic opening title sequences, they're going to be different from now on because we don't have that guy at the helm. Which, good riddance, I don't really care. Like... Some of the early ones are fun and interesting, mm-hmm. but then they got to be the same thing over and over again. Yeah. One of the things that Bond critics really do commend this film for is the realism, which I would agree with that. When we do have like good sequences, they feel real. They don't feel hammy in a lot of ways. Near the end, it gets pretty ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, they they really did double down on trying to make it feel gritty. And all the stunts and action were very much constrained because of the budget. Mm-hmm. I think that may have been one of the biggest factors in why this movie wasn't able to push further than it wanted to. Mm-hmm. They had to do it on the cheap. Her cast. Again, Timothy Dalton as James Bond. The movie was, of course, considered a box office disappointment. So rumors spread that this was going to be his last Bond film. But they were ready to shoot in 1990. A new film titled Property of a Lady. Property of a Lady. And I think that's actually an Ian Fleming story. So the legal issues led to the delays, which led him to retire. And then Pierce Brosnan gets cast for Goldeneye. Mm -hmm. Finally. (laughs) And the potential directors for this film, they were considering John Landis. Hmm. Okay. Ted Kotcheff, who did Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, jeez. And John Byram whose biggest claim to fame was the Bill Murray Razor's Edge film, which like would be worse than John Glenn. Like that's a serious literary drama that Bill Murray did as a like passion project thing. What? Yeah, I know. It's it's weird. I'm very confused. Bill Murray like in the mid 80s almost decided he was going to stop doing comedy and started trying to do these serious dramatic roles. It's very odd. He played Hunter S Thompson in a movie. Like I don't know. That that tracks, actually. <laughs> that does not surprise me. But but John Landis, 
Okay. American Werewolf in London, trading places. If you can get over the fact that, you know, he killed a guy on one of his sets. Which movie was that? Twilight Zone. Oh, okay. Oh, that's a whole story for another day. Okay. It's not like the Bond films are without their accidents. Someone lost a foot. It's very true. I just, (laughs) that one, that one is widely known because it went to court because he was found to be negligent on the set. Landis was. That one was bad. Yeah. Dalton in 2018 came forward and stated that the impetus for retiring came after stating that he wanted to do another film. But Broccoli told him after the long gap, he'd have to do more than just one. The family was like, look, if you want to continue, that's fine. But we can't just do one movie and then cast somebody new. Fair. We've waited too long on this. Yeah, they've they've got to get someone under contract for several. And I, that makes a lot of sense. That's definitely the uh, the Marvel model now. <laughs> it's funny the way that worked out. But, I, you know, that was Dalton's final sticking point. He didn't want to be Bond forever. He didn't want to be Roger Moore. That's fair. And so, like, he, he wanted to do this last movie and put a bow on it. But they were they were like, we need somebody who can do at least two or three more. Well, what I'm sure Dalton was looking at is like, I don't want to overstay my welcome. Like, I want to get the work done and I'm stuck in development hell because it, it's not so much I don't not want to do the movies, but the movies weren't getting made. Yeah. And he was doing other work. So if it's not was, like that was a problem. But still, you 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 want to be this character, but then you just got to go. I don't want to do this forever. Yeah, you don't want to be stuck. I don't want to be Roger Moore in my mid-50s, not able to do fucking stunts. Well, and Roger Moore overstayed his welcome. He just did. He did. and He was so tired. He was. More tired than Connery. And that's saying something, because Connery yeah. was really fucking tired of that role. He was. He said that in this film, he really wanted to get the darker, grittier nature of Bond that was in the novels. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing that he was really pushing for. And apparently, because of all the filming in the US and and Latin America, he said he got very homesick. He really missed a good pint of bitter. No. So we talked about Dalton. You you think he's missing something. I, I agree. We're missing some of the fun charm that we got in The Living Daylights. He's not as playful. He's he's not having fun doing this. I mean, there's something to be said for that. Yeah. In that it's a revenge film. True. But there's not an element of I'm playing with gadgets or I'm exploding somebody. This is fun. If you were going to do the story, we should have done it when Connery was Bond. Like a story like this being on Her Majesty's Secret Service mm-hmm. or like the immediate follow up to Secret Service, mm-hmm. wife gets killed. Yeah. He's finally come to terms with that. And then he goes to this wedding of his best friend. It's this melancholy time. And then his best friend's wife gets killed. And this dude. Yeah. And it's like full berserker rage bond. Yeah. That would have worked. It would have been cool. And it would have worked with a Sean Connery who was very cold and steely and had the charm to pull off suaveness when he needed to, but most of the time was a tough-as-nails motherfucker. Yeah. Like, that's... He couldn't make that switch because he was a much more charming Bond. Yeah. All right. Carrie Lowell as Pam Bouvier. That is our Bond girl. You, not a fan. Me, actually enjoyed. 
just think she's boring. I think what I like is her performance. Mm -hmm. I think she's doing something fun with the role despite the writing of the character. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I enjoy about it a lot. Mm -hmm. She's putting some kind of flavor into it, which we have not seen from a Bond girl in a while. That's fair. This is her first major film role. After this, she was in The Guardian. She was Maggie Baldwin in Sleepless in Seattle. She was in Leaving Las Vegas, Fierce Creatures, Law and Order, and Law and Order Trial by Jury. She had long runs on that as ADA defense attorney and Judge Jamie Ross. Okay. So she got into the Law and Order game. Apparently, she could not stop from closing her eyes and flinching when she fired her gun. And she was a CIA operative, so that couldn't happen. Like, if you were trained with the CIA, you would never flinch when a gun fired. So she had to be trained rigorously to get rid of that tick. And even then, if you watch her closely, she still winces just a tiny little bit every time she fires. She wore a wig for all of her scenes in the US with that kind of long hair. But they added a scene where she cuts her hair so that her actual haircut, which is that short hair that we see for the second half of the movie, Mm -hmm. she could just use her normal haircut. Okay. Which, like, it looks way better. It's a great look for a late 80s Bond girl. Yeah. She actually had some interesting thoughts on being a Bond girl because she never envisioned herself in this kind of role. She showed up to the auditions in jeans and a leather jacket. Okay. She was not your typical Bond girl actress. She wasn't a model or anything like that. And the script wasn't ready when she got there. So she actually read using lines from A View to a Kill. Yeah, that that's not that unusual. And the producers weren't sold on her. Her last film was a movie called Me and Him, a dumb comedy about a talking penis. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's, it's, it's an 80s movie called Me and Him about a talking penis. I'm assuming the penis is him. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to have some follow-up questions for that later. <laughs> do, do you think this needs to go in our grab bag? Um, I'm going to need some more information before I can make that determination. No, absolutely not. But if there's a trailer, I, I want to see it. I, I need more information about a movie called Me and Him that's about a talk penis. Because I have questions. One little fun fact. Her gun is a 25 caliber Beretta which was Bond's original gun in the series before he replaces it with the Walter PPK. So, fun. Thank you. Robert Davi as Franz Sanchez. Before this, he was in Gangster Wars, City Heat, The Goonies, Raw Deal, Wild Thing, Action Jackson, and Die Hard. He was one of the FBI guys who shows up. After this, he was in Peacemaker, Cops and Robertson's Body Count, Showgirls Profiler, The Hot Chick, One Last Ride, and he may be making an appearance in The Goonies 2. Oh yeah, they're coming up with a sequel. I I knew something about it, but uh, whatever. What do you think about Robert Davi in this movie? Eh, he's alright. You really do not like this movie. I'm very meh about it. Like, it's one of those, like, valiant effort. (laughs) it's not a complete turd yeah i'm not mad i spent time watching it but i'm never watching this again that's fair again we we talked about it a little bit the fact that they wrote this character so well as a real villain 
as somebody who was like, oh, this could be an actual dude in the real world. Mm-hmm. And they, it feels like they did their homework. A guy like this, who's very good at chewing scenery, was able to just gnash into it because it was so well written. I really liked watching him yeah, because it felt for the first time in a long time, we had a villain who felt like truly threatening. <laughs> Unlike some of these really dumb ones that we get in the early and mid 80s. Yeah. Sanchez's character, of course, is very likely based on Pablo Escobar, who was incredibly active during the release of this film. Mm-hmm. His drug empire was going very strong. Robert Dobby had to learn to scuba dive for when he escaped from the armored car in the Florida Keys. Ooh, cool. He extensively researched Colombian drug cartels and a Colombian accent. Cool. I said Cuba earlier. I believe it is Colombia that he is from. He stayed in character offset while method acting. Okay, whatever. It's kind of dumb, but if that's your move, that's fine. Just don't hurt other people. And he actually read the original Casino Royale because he envisioned Sanchez as a mirror image of Bond based on Fleming's idea of Le Chief. Okay, I like that. And I I do think there is something to that. He's a very charming but dangerous person. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's part of why he comes across kind of meh, is that Dalton never matches that energy. That makes a lot of sense, and I like that. Yeah. We have Talisa Soto as Lupe Lamora, the other Bond girl. Before this, she was in the Pope of Greenwich Village. After this, she was in the Mambo Kings, Don Juan DeMarco, Mortal Kombat, Spy Hard, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and Ballistic X vs. Sever. Not good movies. She's bleh. She's very bleh. She is just there for plot points and having sex with James Bond. Dalton wasn't available to do her screen test, so Davi filled in for the role of Bond. And apparently did a pretty good job. The producers were actually impressed. Well, that's good. And finally, for our leads, Anthony Zerby as Milton Crest. Uh, before this, he was a dog boy in Cool Hand Luke. Will Penny, the Molly Maguires, They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, The Omega Man, The Life of Times of Judge Roy Bean, Papillon, The Laughing Policeman, The Parallax View, Farewell, My Lovely, Rooster Cogburn, Who'll Stop the Rain, The Dead Zones, and See No Evil, Hear No Evil. <laughs> After this, he did The Young Writers, Star Trek Insurrection, the Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolutions, and American Hustle. Oh, God. Not that one. He's just a smarmy dude, but I found his credits very interesting. That is interesting. All right, Arpons. Arpons? Frank McRae as Sharky. Sharky. Um, the boat guy and erstwhile other CIA agent. We've seen him in so many things. He's been in three other movies we've talked about. He was Mr. Teasdale, the teacher in Red Dawn, 1984. <laughs> He was Grover in Vacation, and he was the meat foreman in Rocky Two. The meat foreman. And a famous football player. He's been in so many fucking movies. That's insane. As Killifer, the sneaky CIA agent trying to get some extra money on the side, Everett McGill, he has an instantly recognizable face if you've ever seen Twin Peaks. He plays the role of Big Ed Hurley. Oh, okay. We have Wayne Newton. As Professor Joe Butcher. Yeah, I love, okay, I fucking love anytime I see Wayne Newton. I don't know why, I just do, because it's so absurd. It, I, I just love, he's just, his whole thing, he's just selling the the drugs. 
He's selling the drugs and also a nice side profit business of crappy meditation shit. Yeah, it's great. And he, what's so great is that, you know, in Vegas Vacation, he's playing just a a hyped up version of Wayne Newton. Mm -hmm. In this, he's playing like the Wayne Newton dark alter ego, Mm -hmm. the cult leader Wayne Newton, which is kind of fun. Yeah. He actually got cast because he wrote a letter to the producers saying that he had always wanted to be in a Bond film. Oh, that's cool. And so they were, I think they figured out a character and were like, come on over, Wayne. Let's just do this. Why not? (laughs) All right. Maybe my favorite character in this movie as Dario Benicio del Toro. He is the youngest Bond villain ever at the age of 21 when he did this. And he looks the exact same. He does, but he is hot. Like, Benicio del Toro now has lived some life, but like back then, oh man, he was sexy. See, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't think he's that attractive a person. Like, he has his moments, but no, I don't think he's that attractive. But also, he low-key gives one of the best performances in this movie. He's very good. He is truly frightening. Yes, he is. It's just one of those who are like, oh, you're going to be an actual movie star one day because you're good. Hmm. As Truman Lodge, Anthony Stark, this is a TV that guy. Like, he's been in every television show ever. Mm-hmm. This is the white dude who's palling around with all of them. Oh, okay. Um. He makes the joke that the whole setup of the bank and casino and everything cost $32 million, which was the budget of this film. <laughs> As President Hector Lopez of this Banana Republic country, Pedro Armendariz Jr., he is a big deal Mexican actor known for playing alongside Antonio Banderas in Zorro and Once Upon a Time in Mexico. But more importantly, his father was in From Russia with Love as Kareem Bey, their Turkish counterpart. Okay. Senior was in that movie, which is kind of fun. Q. Desmond Llewellyn as Q. (laughs) The most prominent Q performance in the Bond franchise. Q actually gets to be a part of the mission, this movie. Yep. Which might be the most delightful part of the stuff. It was his idea to toss the radio slash rake into the bushes and walk away. The joke being that after reprimanding Bond for so many years to take care of the equipment, he just tossed it aside. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So fucking funny. And apparently, according to him, this is the first time he actually made any real money from the Bond films. Hmm, I believe that. (laughs) Because he had more screen time. Reprising his performance from Live and Let Die, David Hedison playing Felix Leiter. Good grief. In one of the takes of the parachute sequence, he fell on the pavement, resulting in him limping for the rest of filming. Priscilla Barnes as Della Churchill, she replaced Suzanne Summers on Three's Company and now has a recurring role on Jane the Virgin. Hmm. We have Robert Brown as M returning. We have Caroline Bliss as Moneypenny, our new Moneypenny for two movies. Don Stroud as Heller. He was a big character actor in the 60s and 70s and had a little role in Django Unchained. Hmm. Grandel Bush as Hawkins. This was the other CIA guy that kept being like, hey, James, if you don't stop this, we're going to arrest you. You might recognize him as Robert Davi's fellow FBI agent in Die Hard. He was the other FBI agent. Okay. You had Big Johnson, Robert Davi, and Little Johnson, Grandel Bush. Okay. Die Hard, a subtle movie. 
As Kwong, Karihiroki Togawa, he was a character actor appearing in The Last Emperor, Mortal Kombat, and The Man in the High Castle. Bob Martinez as the customs officer. The reason he's interesting was at the time, he was the then governor of Florida. Okay. He got them tax breaks, and so they wrote a little role for him in the movie, just to be a customs guy at the airport. He presented the filmmakers with the seal of the state of Florida while they filmed for a month in Key West. But that same year, he also spurred a huge controversy when he claimed that the Two Life Crew album Nasty As They Wanna Be violated Florida's obscenity laws, kicking off the big giant controversy over parental advisories. Mm. We have James Dorta as a doctor. He is Albert Broccoli's cousin. Pays to be a member of the Broccoli family. It really does. Michael G. Wilson is a voice of a DEA agent. And... As some random wedding guests, Doug Redenius, a Chicago postman who owns one of the largest collections of Bond memorabilia, Sandy Santel, an Atlanta gym teacher who won an MTV slash VH1 contest to appear in the movie, and still photographer Keith Hamshear, an actual wedding photographer. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! And that is truly some random people of note. That really is. (laughs) All right, trivia. At the time, Dalton denied claims from the media that Bond was explicitly not made so sexual in this movie because of the AIDS epidemic. Okay. In 2007, he reversed that statement saying that was absolutely one of the reasons we didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Good on them for making that decision. I understand like it sucks at the time to be that way, but like, good on them for recognizing that and saying, hey, let's tone it down just a little bit. Bond's resignation was shot at Ernest Hemingway's home in Key West. So that house that they're in was where Hemingway stayed in Florida near the end of his life. Oh, okay. And that's why his line, I guess this was a farewell to arms, is a little bit of an inside joke. This is the only Bond film to feature a tobacco warning in its closing credits because he is smoking cigarettes through the entire time during this movie. After throat surgery and possibly issues with working with AHA on the previous film, John Barry stepped down from scoring the franchise. Michael Kamen instead takes over for this film. And Kamen, along with a lot of actors in this film, were also big part of Joel Silver's movies in the 80s. So that's one of the reasons they went after him. Oh. The film's closing credit song, If You Asked Me To, which is performed by Patti LaBelle and is a banger. It's pretty good became a little minor hit later when Celine Dion covered it. Hmm. This is the first Bond film not to take its title from a Fleming novel or short story. There were only a few remaining titles left. Property of a Lady, Quantum of Solace, 007 in New York, Risico, and the Hildebrand Rarity. Hmm. They used a prosthetic head for Crest's death scene in the pressure chamber from a mold of his face, but the result was so gruesome that they had to shorten that whole sequence and pull it back to avoid censorship. And there were even more violent moments that got cut from the film. There was a shot of Felix's severed leg in the water. Ew. There was a shot of Lodi being shot in the breasts. Dario's legs actually being diced in the mincer. See, now I want to see the violent version of this movie. And the full uncut version of Sanchez being burned alive. Gross. I want to see the violent version of this movie. This should have been an R film. It should have. It would have been better. It should have been an R film, or you should have at least brought in a team that knew how to edit this movie 
because that's one of the biggest problems with these movies. They're edited so slowly. Mm-hmm. If you fast edit it and you chop it up kind of like a Bourne movie, mm-hmm. you still get that same uneasy effect without necessarily needing to show everything. Like you can still make something where you don't see a lot of blood, you don't see a lot of gore, but you still have that unsettled feeling about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And they needed that and they didn't have it for this movie. Benicio del Toro actually cut Dalton's hand while Bond was hanging over the cocaine grinder and they had to stitch Dalton up on site. Uh, the tanker explosion had a ton of strange issues and mishaps. This is where things get a little spooky. It was filmed on the dangerous La Rumorosa Road, which had been closed because of numerous fatal accidents on its snaking twists and turns. They modified the semi-trucks to have faster engines, and one had a steering component in the back so that the stuntman could drive while Carrie Lowell was in the front pretending to drive the truck. They pulled off all of those stunts without having to use camera rigs and trickery. The dummy rocket that they used to bring down the big building went two and a half miles off target, hitting and injuring a telephone worker. The area of the road where they were filming was the spot where a van holding five nuns crashed and killed them all. Dalton himself nearly died when he released the tanker to blow up the trucks at the bottom of the hill. They had cleared all the vehicles, but as he came around a curve, there was a car in his way, and he nearly got driven off the edge of the highway. Hmm. Then, John Glenn and others stated that they could see human figures standing around the fleet of semis during filming, and when security guards went to go confront them, they disappeared. (laughs) I told you it was going to get spooky. It keeps going. What? Two semis caught fire for no apparent reason. One, no apparent reason. One started by itself and actually drove a bit before coming to a stop. But the biggest surprise of all came in the tanker explosion. Everything went fine, and the photographers shot still photos for publicity. When they reviewed the photos, the photographer had one that looked like a flaming hand was coming out of the fire. There were cameras everywhere on set. But this one photograph was the only place where you could see the hand. John Glenn stated that they made a copy for him, but his wife refused to let him have it in the house. Wow. They were on a motherfucking haunted road. That is insane. They were on a motherfucking haunted road. That's ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) You weren't expecting Bond to get spooky, were you? No. Ooh. I did not expect spooks with my Bond. No spooky Bonds. (laughs) I did not sign up for Spooky Barn. That was too good a story not to share. Insane. <laughs> That's so good. They used a seaplane lease from a Louisiana company to do all of those seaplane shots. When they returned it, the owners found a bunch of loose movie cash in the plane cabin <laughs> from where Bond had tried to rip out all the, okay. throw out the drug cash. John Reese Davies was offered to return as General Pushkin, but he declined because he was filming Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The movie was originally called License Revoked, but it was not used to avoid confusion with a newer Bond novel, because Bond novels are still being written here and there, called License Renewed. Uh. The maggots in Crest's lab were actually white plastic fishing grub lures Mm -hmm. that they moved around. They looked grody. Yep. 
Eric Clapton and original Bond guitarist Vic Flick were actually asked to recreate the theme song, but what they wound up doing was making a video of a new version of it with the riff played by Flick anyway, and the producers were like, this isn't what we wanted. We wanted something different. Go away. And finally, the mini-sub used in this film is the exact same mini-sub from The Spy Who Loved Me. And that is Dalton as Bond. Dalton as Bond. <sighs> like. <sighs> it, took, it took way too long to get him in the role for a variety of reasons that are logistical. Okay. And it's just how it worked out. And make total sense. And it just, just, they didn't have the right people behind him. No. They just didn't have the right people behind him. And so it was a failed attempt. The only movie that I can say 100% without a doubt would have been on a top echelon bond if we had Dalton in it was A View to a Kill. Mm -hmm. If he was in A View to a Kill with the star power around it and the pretty solid story behind that, I feel like it would have worked. Maybe. Like with Christopher Walken there to bounce off against and the sort of just wildness of it all and the goldfinger of it all, mm -hmm. there's something about his suaveness that works. Yeah. But again, it's just they, they hamstrung him and they put him in a position where it's like, you're not playing to his talents. Yeah. He can be dangerous. He is a little dark and steely, but he seems that way when you look at him. And then it turns out he's actually pretty charming and fun. Mm -hmm. And that's what's kind of cool about him. He really is a cool Bond. It's just that these movies didn't get to showcase that at all. Mm. We don't know what we would have gotten if we kept going with it. Yeah. But also, it's kind of good that that happened because we got rid of the creative team that didn't know what to do with this anymore. Yeah. It's just very lackluster. It's the opposite of Lazenby. It's the opposite of the lightning in a bottle matched yeah. with really good talent. Lazenby just left me wanting so much more. And Dalton just is kind of like, well, that was a thing that happened. Yeah, I know. It's not his fault. No, he's being a perfectly good James Bond. They're just not giving him anything else to work with. Yeah. So for this movie, ratings, I mean, how many kilos? How okay. many kilos of cocaine? Kilos of cocaine. I have two. I just don't care. Two. It's really forgettable. <sighs> like, it's not hot, hot garbage. It's not wildly offensive. I just don't care. Two and a half. You know what? Two and a half for me. Because while I agree with you that it is a little bit forgettable, I also think just as many things work in this movie that don't work. Mm. And I really like the characters. Mm. I like the solid characters and the solid base. It's just that the whole thing didn't come together. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. that leads us into a territory of Bond that we both know very well. I don't know if we know it very well, but we have finally gotten to, it's taken us this long for us to finally round the corner to the Bond that we are familiar with. That you definitely are familiar with. Well, we're finally getting to my original Bond. Like the Bond that I that that I know. I can tell you right now, just based off of some of this trivia, mm -hmm. they really did radically overhaul the franchise. So okay, so we're next time we're doing Brosnan. We're 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 going through all of them in preparation for Bond twenty five. Of course, we're we're gonna go through all of them and we're gonna go through it with a critical eye because we ha I have not watched these since they originally came out. I know I've seen them on cable for a while, but then they fell out of the rotation. 
Mm-hmm. And I know I haven't seen, especially the Pierce Brosnan movies, in a long time. And hey, uh, right now, all the Brosnan are on Netflix. That's true. In which case, we're also going to be bringing in some guests to talk about these movies. Yes, we've got a, we've got a handful of guests to come. Let's talk about some Bond. It's going to be interesting. Brosnan is a very interesting patch of movies, I think. Yes. I think we're going to get some good and some really bad. Yes. And then we're going to jump into another complete overhaul. Yes, and just wildly different with Craig. Wildly different, and yet, as a tease, maybe a little the same. Yeah. Maybe a little the same. Until next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 